Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast, city to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Thursday morning. Welcome on in to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is great to be back. Now, don't get me wrong. Being on vacation the last few days, going to beautiful, absolutely beautiful San Diego was a blast. Myself and my girlfriend, Lauren, uh, met up with my uncle, Brian, who lives out there, so we were able to stay with him, go see a little, uh, go to the San Diego Zoo incredible if you haven't been i can't re uh, i can't suggest going more got to go snorkeling which was amazing in la jolla it was a tremendous tremendous little long weekend last weekend which is the reason why we didn't have a thursday show or a monday show um was that i was in san diego taking a little time to i guess decompress if you will but i can't lie i can't lie and say i didn't miss talking to you guys i cannot lie and say that I didn't miss doing the show. It is great to be back. It was great to be on vacation. It was great to be in the sun and kind of get an early start to the summer. But man, is it great to be back here on a Thursday morning where I belong on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. As always, we are coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. Let's start the show off. With game number one, the Western Conference Finals yesterday, the Warriors smoked the Mavericks, take a 1-0 series lead. The Warriors are going to the NBA Finals. I think this series, uh, I don't say it's over, but, well, it's over. I picked the Warriors going into this series before yesterday's game one started, and the reason I picked the Warriors to take down the Mavericks was because of Golden State's defense. And yesterday, that defense played out Enough to where, again, it was an absolute blowout. The Mavs couldn't get anything going on offense. And the Warriors, despite having Splash Brother and Steph Curry, despite having Sharpshooter in Klay Thompson, despite having Emerging Star in Jordan Poole, the thing that's going to get the Warriors to the NBA Finals is their defense. Usually, right, what is the old moniker in sports? Don't let the best player beat you. And this example with the Mavericks, right, usually most teams have said, don't let Luka beat you. Let anyone else, if it's Jalen Brunson, if it's Reggie Bullock, if it's Maxi Kleba, if it's Spencer Dinwiddie, fine, you'll live with it. Just don't let Luka Doncic beat you. Make someone else do so. The ironic part of that is that the Warriors defense has adopted the opposite philosophy. And so far, it's worked to perfection. They are letting Luka beat them. That is how they're going to approach a series. Even though Game 1, Luka had an off game, that's how they're going to approach the rest of the series, is letting Luka beat them. I get it sounds like a paradox. I get it sounds counterintuitive. But that defensive philosophy of letting the star player get theirs, but letting no one else have success, is how the Warriors took down the Nuggets, how they beat the Grizzlies, and how I think they are going to beat the Mavericks. It's genius. 
The Warriors have let the star beat them in every series so far. They have focused on eliminating instead the role players who are doing the opposite of conventional wisdom. And it's worked to perfection. Look at round number one. Let's go back here a few weeks. Round one, Warriors versus Nuggets. The Warriors basically said, Nicole Jokic, you are going to become a scorer. You are not, though, going to become a playmaker. You are not going to set everyone else up on your team for open looks and getting good shots like you've done all season long. I know there's no Jamal Murray. I know there's no Marco, uh, Michael Porter Jr., so it's a little bit easier. But the Warriors made Nikola Jokic a scorer instead of a playmaker, and it worked to perfection. In that series, the five-game series, Nikola Jokic averaged 31 points per game. They gave him every look he wanted, and he got to the bucket and got his. But the big difference in that series was the assists. Joker, 7.8 assists during the regular season. The reason why he won his second consecutive MVP award is not for his scoring prowess. Joel Embiid won the scoring title. That wasn't enough to get him MVP. Joker won the MVP a second in a row because of his ability to set up his teammates, his ability to get everyone else around him make them better. And one of the ways he does that is in the assist game with cross-court passes, with tremendous no-look passes, and by getting his teammates in spots to succeed. Well, despite having 7.8 assists per game in the regular season, in that five-game series, Joker was held to just 5.8. Two assists less per game. The Warriors said, you will score, not play make, and it worked to perfection. The second leading scorer on the Nuggets in that series was Monte Morris. No disrespect to Monte Morris, but your second leading scorer is averaging 14 points per game. You are not winning that playoff series. And that's exactly what the Warriors did. Moved on, gentlemen sweep five games over the Nuggets. Round number two. They let John Morant dominate for three games. I know it's a little tougher in this example because John Morant missed the final three games with a knee injury. But the Warriors said, Ja, go crazy. No one else is beating us. In the three full games John Morant played, he's, uh, he averaged 38 points per game. 38 points per game. But let's not forget, even before John Morant went out, in those three games he did play, the Warriors won two out of those three games, which John Morant averaged 38 points per game. The Warriors let Morant get his. They let Ja go off, but they made sure and and made a conscious effort in not allowing uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. and not allowing Desmond Bain or Tyus Jones or Dylan Brooks. They made sure those guys aren't beating us. Ja can go off, but him going off is not going to be enough if no one else steps up in order to beat us. And it worked to perfection because, again, two out of those first three games, when Ja was in the lineup and healthy, the Warriors won. And you look at the rest of the role players for Memphis, too inconsistent. Sure, Jaron Jackson Jr., game one, 30-plus points. Sure, the Grizzlies in game five won by 40. Blew out the Warriors. But Golden State won that series in large part because they cut off the role players. They made sure the ancillary pieces around Morant, and in the first series, the ancillary pieces around Nikola Jokic, didn't have success. And I think that that strategy that worked in round one, that strategy that worked in round two, is going to be implemented here again in the Western Conference Finals against the Mavericks, and I think it's going to work. Let Luka get his. Let him score 40 a game. That's fine. But as long as no one else around him, as long as Spencer Dinwiddie and Jalen Brunson 
and Reggie Bullock and Dorian Finney-Smith, as long as they are, are, are contained, as long as they are not popping off, you are going to win this series. And the perfect example is this last series, Suns versus Mavericks. It's not just enough that the Warriors have done so, have uh, adopted this philosophy of letting the star basically go off and let no one else around them succeed. It's not only that it worked for them so far in the first two series um, of the playoffs. It's also to the point that the Suns did this and adopted basically the same philosophy and almost beat the Mavericks because of it. If you look at the three games the Mavericks lost compared to the four games they won in that second round series against the Suns, it is night and day, and you see the one constant is Luka scoring, and the, the big variable in this series is the help or lack thereof Luka received uh, behind him. In the three games, the three losses the Mavericks had in games one, two, and five, Luka Doncic in those three games the Mavericks lost scored 45 points, 35 points, 28 points. The Mavericks didn't lose because Luka Doncic had a bad game. And they weren't blown out in those three games because Luka struggled. They were blown out in those three games. Let's not forget. But the difference was no one behind Luka stepped up. No one played well to kind of provide support for him. And when everyone struggled, like they did in games one, two, and five, Dallas lost. But when they played well, when they were making their shots and made serious contributions, guess what? Mavericks won all four games. Three games, the Mavs lost. Lucas scored well. No one else played well. In the four wins Dallas had against the best team in the NBA, you had in game three, Jalen Brunson leading, leading the Mavericks in scoring. Outscored Luka Doncic. Game four, Dorian Finney-Smith drilling eight threes in that game. Game six, you had three players score at least 15 points for Dallas. And Game 7 in that laugher. Sure, you got a lot of help from, from Phoenix, you know, not being able to hit water from a boat. But you get 30 points from Spencer Dinwiddie, electric from three, 24 from Jalen Brunson. The Mavericks' key to success here is not about Luka Doncic. It is about everyone else around him. Luka is going to get his. Luka is absolutely going to score and score at will no matter how many guys you throw at him. You can throw two, three, four, five. It doesn't matter. He's going to score. You can throw six guys. Steve Kerr can break the rules, put six guys on the court, all guard Luka Doncic. He's going to drop 30. The key is limiting everyone else around him. If the Warriors can do that and that's what they're going to do, they are going to win this series because just like the Warriors have done in the first two rounds, they have let the star eat. They have let the star player on the opponent they've been playing go off. Score 30 a game, score 38 a game, doesn't matter. As long as no one else around him steps up, that one player cannot carry the team past the Warriors for four games. One game, sure. But to win a series, no. And last night in game number one was that example. Now look. Luka's not going to have another poor game like he did in game one yesterday. Just 6 of 18 from the field, scored 20 points, the lowest output he has scored this postseason. That's not going to happen again. He's going to get back. I promise you in game two, I bet he's going to go at least for 30. But that doesn't matter. As long as the Warriors continue to shut down Brunson, Dinwiddie, Finney Smith, Kleba, as long as those guys are corralled, the Warriors are winning this series. 
So instead of wasting energy to slow down Luka Doncic, the goal and the Warriors so far going to execute this is shutting down everyone else. It's counterintuitive to say, let Luka go off. Let Luka get his. But that is the way you beat the Mavs, and that is the Warriors defense, what they're going to adopt this series, and that is why and how the Warriors are going to the NBA Finals. They are going to let Luka beat them in terms of scoring, scoring, scoring. But the reality is Luka cannot carry the Mavs by himself. Luka needs help from the guys around him. In the three games that the Mavs lost, everyone around him stunk. In the four games they won, he received contributions on top of playing well. Luka's the one constant in this series for Dallas. He's going to score, and again, even though he had a, a playoff low this postseason of 20 points last night and really struggled, the difference was everyone else around him struggling. This series is coming down to the role players. When you have such a star like Luka Doncic, it's easy to say, oh, Luka's going to carry him. This series is coming down to the role players of Dallas, and I trust Golden State's defense to take them out of the game and slow them down more times than not. Golden State is winning this series and going to the finals because of their defense. Not something we've said a lot uh, so far in this Golden State run, if you will, if you want to continue the dynasty for when they started it uh, about five, six years ago. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Can Golden State's defense be enough to take down the Mavericks? Can Luka Doncic, if you let Luka get his, can Luka Doncic be good enough to carry the Mavericks in this series past the Golden State? Love to hear your thoughts on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. You can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show right there, direct, and also on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Network. Those three platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. You can comment, but also that is where the live stream of the show is right now. So if you're bouncing around media platforms, social media platforms, if you're listening to us, we appreciate it. If you want to see some audio, or if you want to see some video, which not why you know, not sure why you want to see this ugly mug, but hey, if you have an inclination for some pain on this Thursday morning, you can check out the video on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. When we return, how about Nick Saban? Late last night, dropping a Bomb on Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M. It is proof, the latest example of proof, of why NIL is great, great for college sports. We will discuss why when we return. Listen to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey Show, back with you on this Thursday morning. If you've listened to this show, and hopefully you have for a while, but if not, if you are a new listener, first of all, welcome. We appreciate you listening to us right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We're here every Monday, Thursday, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern. But you will know if you are a, a longtime listener, and I am a massive proponent of name, image, and likeness, uh, name, image, likeness, I should say, in college sports. I think it's a tremendous idea. I think it's long, long, long overdue. And aside from the kids, the athletes themselves, finally being able to do what everyone else in this country is able to do, profit off of your talents, no matter your age. Hey, right, me, 
I can get paid for the show right now. But if I was in college, if I was a college athlete, I couldn't. It was absurd. It's stupid. So finally, college athletes were really the only section of people in this country that weren't allowed to benefit and profit off of their talent and off of their, their fame, if you will. Now those rules are finally changed. So not only is it finally just common sense, name, image, and likeness is also bringing parity to college sports. It's the great equalizer in an industry and in a, a section right now that is facing less and less parity, especially in college football. Right? I don't know about you, I'm a massive college football fan, and I am desperate for parity because right now one of the things we don't see is a lot of different teams competing for a title. It's usually the same four, five, six, seven schools. I know Cincinnati and Michigan surprise a few, you know, a lot of people are making the cultural playoff this year, but who are the two teams in the end playing for the title? Georgia and Alabama. It's a lot of the same teams each and every year competing to win the championship. So the way that other teams get in the mix and have their championship uh, hopes elevated is by spreading the talent out. And that is what name, image, and likeness was designed to do. And I think yesterday, last night, we got the latest confirmation that name, image, and likeness is doing exactly what it's intended to do. So Nick Saban yesterday had a few quotes when speaking to uh, basically 100 local businesses in Birmingham. Him complaining about name, image, and likeness, him kind of voicing his frustration and how name, image, and likeness is quote-unquote hurting Alabama is exactly what you need to hear to know that parity is slowly entering college football. It's going to be a slow burn, if you will. It's going to be a slow rise to spread the talent out. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning or this time next year and have 30 teams competing for a college football playoff. It's going to be slow. It's going to be gradual. But yesterday, Nick Saban offered the latest hint that NIL is working and it's starting to hurt the massive brand like Alabama. So I want to read you a few quotes that Nick Saban said last night to 100 local businesses when he was doing basically what was a fundraising event in Birmingham. So the one that got a lot of pub, the one that is spreading like wildfire this morning, Nick Saban said this, quote, we were second, speaking of Alabama, we were second in recruiting last year. A&M was first. A&M bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, and likeness. We didn't buy one player. I, I love how Nick Saban says it. I, we didn't buy one player. I, but I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future because more and more people are doing it. It's tough, end quote. Nick Saban, basically saying the quiet part out loud, showing how flustered he is by calling out Texas A&M directly shows you a name, image, and likeness is making it tougher and tougher and tougher for Alabama to get the best players like they consistently been doing to Tuscaloosa each and every year. Spreading that talent out now is what is going to even the playing field, especially in college football. Now look, again, it's gradual. Alabama was second in recruiting last year. It's not going to happen overnight. But you want to know how we know Nick Saban is flustered? You want to know the direct way we know that Nick Saban is frustrated by naming image and likeness, how it's having a so far negative impact on his program in terms of getting every single top talent they've normally gotten? 
because he put a name. He finally did the one thing Nick Saban has never, ever, ever done in his coaching career, and that is calling someone out. That is directly calling someone out. Look, Texas A&M's recruiting class has been a topic that's discussed by a lot of people. Nick Saban's not the first to bring it up. Nick Saban won't be the last to bring it up. For me, my opinion, I do think A&M bought every single player. I think it's no mistake and, and no coincidence that as soon as name, image, and likeness is passed, all of a sudden, Texas A&M, who have a lot, a lot of alumni and boosters in the oil industry that are very rich, that gave Jimbo Fisher a massive contract, I have no doubt in my mind they were dangling massive NIL deals in front of these kids and say, hey, you come to A&M, basically here's a million dollars right here in this deal or that deal. I think AM bought the players 100%. But Nick Saban becomes the first person, the first coach to basically say the quiet part out loud. Saban has danced around it before. Lane Kiffin has danced around it before. Jimbo Fisher has called out coaches for kind of insinuating without anyone ever going on the record and saying directly AM paid their players. Uh, Jimbo Fisher got frustrated and called uh, coaches out. And now yesterday, Nick Saban kind of crossing the line that no coach wanted to cross up to this point and naming Texas A&M, saying they paid every single player to come to their school shows you Nick Saban is having frustrations and he knows NIL is the equalizer and is bringing parity to the sport because he is now losing out on recruits. They're going to go to other schools because they can get more money. Whether it's fair or not, it's a different story. Whether it's right or not, it's a different topic. The reality is right now, kids are picking their schools based in part in part on NIL deals and who can offer them more, uh, more money. And Texas A&M and this recruiting class went all in. Now to Jimbo's credit and to really the boosters' credit, they were able to collect the highest ever rated recruiting class in re- recruiting history in terms of stars. They had a historically great class. So again, it's no coincidence, kind of like Ole Miss a few years ago, if you go back to 2014, when Ole Miss out of nowhere had like the number three recruiting class in the country, and all of a sudden, if, you know, a few years later, you find out Hugh Freeze, there was recruiting violations, there was, you know, strippers called uh, on other phones, and there was some big time sanctions laid down Ole Miss. But Nick Saban, putting a name and publicly calling out a, a, an opponent, shows you, He's flustered, right? Look, Nick Saban has never done that before. What is he? This guy yells at the media and yells at his own team for not respecting Georgia Southern in a week one game. Tries to blame the media for poisoning his players and, and feeding them rap poison about how great they are. Nick Saban will never, ever, ever say a bad word about an opponent. Ever. He will never say it's an easy game. He will always make sure that this game, no matter if it's against Georgia or or no matter if it's against the Little Sisters of the Poor, will make sure this is the biggest game Alabama will ever play. So to hear him single out Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M shows you he's rattled. He knows NIL is making it even harder to recruit and is taking kids away from Alabama. They're still going to get a lot of recruits. Again, they're number two in recruiting. But now Nick Saban, when there's other reasons to go elsewhere... For kids, knows it's going to be even harder to attract players to Tuscaloosa than it was before. Now, all things equal, 
You can get a million dollars from AM or rather go to Alabama. Some kids will still go, you know what? I'll play the long game here. I'll go to Alabama. I'll get my degree and I'll, you know, be a high draft pick and make sure at least that in the NFL, when there's real money to be made, I'll be saying instead of going for a quick uh, you know, cash grab here at College Station or here at NC State or, or whatever school wants to go all in on, on, on getting it. But Nick Saban is flustered. And this shows you why NIL is a good thing and why it's working. Why, like, why is there no parity in college football? Why is it always the same five, six, seven schools that are always competing for a national title of year? That's where all the kids go. It's a cycle. As soon as you're at the top, it's so much easier to recruit kids. If you're Nick Saban, if you're Kirby Smart, if you're Dabo Sweeney, if you're Ryan Day, if now you're Lincoln Riley at USC, all the talent is too cluttered within seven schools and really within one region in the SEC. Ohio State's, and even Clemson to a certain extent, but they're kind of still in that southern footprint. But Ohio State's really that one school outside of the SEC country that has consistently been able to recruit and compete at a high level every single year. Otherwise, everyone is staying in that southeast region. Well, one of the ways you get kids either out of that region, elsewhere, or go to different schools in that area is by offering them incentives is by offering them a pathway and an alternative to go to a different school. So yes, Bama's still going to have a high recruiting class. Georgia, Clemson, Ohio State, they are all going to still you know, be in the top five and the top ten of recruiting classes every single year. But maybe now, instead of getting five five-star kids, they're only getting two or three because the other two or three are going elsewhere, are going to smaller schools, are going to, let's say, a Penn State or let's say Wisconsin, or USC, or Texas, because they can offer them more money. Spreading the talent out is how parity comes back to college football. That, to me, is a good thing. So what A&M is doing, I think is fine. Like, honestly, this is what I don't understand. I don't get why it's such a big deal, and this is really throughout college football. A lot of administrators, a lot of coaches, a lot of athletic directors are really complaining right now about the pay-for-play that's going on with recruiting. That boosters are now offering high school kids, you know, big-time NIL deals come to their school. Why is that a bad thing? Like, honestly, why is it a bad thing for high school kids to have options and to have schools kind of having a bidding war over them? Like, it's again, it's like any other job industry in this country. If me or you, let's say, I don't know, worked in finance, we were a great banker, we were out of college, we have a great resume, and now companies want to hire us. Well, if you're between, let's say, Goldman Sachs and, I don't know, KPMG, or I know that's not, as a, but whatever. Goldman Sachs is, let's say, offering you $500,000 as a salary. Well, you go back to KPMG and saying, hey, look, I really want to work for you. Goldman Sachs is offering me this. Can you do a little bit better? Now, most people, or some people, won't make their determination based on salary. They'll say, you know what, I'll take less to go here because I like the workplace here, and the little less money I make, it'll be worth it because I like the people, I like the boss, I think I can have success here. Some people are still going to go to Alabama, even if they're not offering as much as other schools because they see the long game, or they like Nick Saban, or they like the area, they always want to go to Alabama. There's always different reasons why. But some people will say, you know what, you do a little bit better than this school, and I'm in. You pay a little bit more, and I'm in. If we were, again, job searching, it's the same thing. 
If one company is offering you a little bit more money for basically the same job title, the same responsibilities, more times than not, you're going to go to the one that's offering you a little bit more money. Why is it now, or why should you be punished for you being so good at your job that you have, that you have companies competing over you? How is that a bad thing? This country is built on what? Capitalism. The, the ones who are best at their job, the ones that are the most skilled, the ones that are most creative, get the most money. That's, I think, fair. I think it's how it works, and that's how this country runs. Why is it different when it comes to college football? Why should the best high school football player now all of a sudden not be allowed to weigh offers from different schools where Alabama's offering him this, LSU's offering him that, here comes Georgia with a big deal, here comes Ohio State or USC. Why are we punishing kids and saying it's bad for them to profit off of being insanely talented? doesn't make any sense to me. Why do we have to race to fix that we don't? I think what's going on is a good thing. I have no problem with Texas A&M doing what they did. Is it sustainable to hold their story? But A&M shelling out millions of dollars, getting the literal, historically best recruiting class in terms of stars since the whole star rating was created. Nothing is good for college football. Spreading the talent out is good for the sport because that's what it needs. Now, I do want to say one thing quickly here. There's been a lot of discussion about fixing NIL. It's the wild, wild west. And Nick Saban talked about this. I want to read you a quote really quickly here. Because I think Nick Saban did hit the nail on the head. It's the entire NAL system. Because it's still brand new. We're not even a year in yet. July 1st was the official first day of 2021 where NIL was allowed. Legally. So we're not even a year in to NIL yet. It's going to course correct soon. Because this model is not sustainable. I want to read you what Nick Saban said yesterday on top of just calling out Texas A&M. He said, quote... I don't know if this is a sustainable model because one of you folks is going to give some player, again, he's talking to businesses. In this speech yesterday, he's talking to business owners. So he's saying one of you guys in this crowd is going to give a player who comes to our school a bunch of money to come to Alabama. And then you're going to go to the game in full strut, I thinking I'm going to tell everyone I got that guy to come to Alabama. And then when he's not going to play and he's going to transfer, you're going to say, I'm never going to do this again. End quote. Nick Sam's 100% right. Nick Saban is a hundred thousand percent right. Kids right now can get a million dollars to go to A and M. A and M, let's say, roughly shelling out what is reported and estimated thirty million dollars for their recruiting class. Let me ask you this: twenty-five kids in that recruiting class, all eighteen years old or seventeen years old. You think all twenty-five are going to work out? You think all twenty-five are going to be first-round picks? Stay Texas A&M three or four years. Start right away. Progress in the way you think. No. But guess what? The money is still there. They got that million dollars. So boosters now are going to learn the hard way when more times than not, their investment flames out. It's college kids. Look how many people are transferring. So the numbers suggest that more times than not, this gamble is not going to pay off. I mean, we were all 18 once. Imagine being a freshman in college and getting a million dollars handed to you. You really think that's a good idea? You really think you're going to make good or whether it's play your best, go to school, do the right thing? It's tough. We all make mistakes in college. So to think 
that every single player that gets, you know, that's in high school that's going to get money to go to a school is going to work out is lunacy. In reality, it's more volatile and it's not going to work more than it does. So whether he sits for three years, whether he transfers, whether he just doesn't play well, do you really think every single year those boosters at AM or Alabama or Georgia are going to be shelling out millions of dollars to recruits? No. The situation Nick Saban just laid out is exactly what's going to happen more times than not. It's not going to work out. They're going to transfer. They're going to say, especially in Alabama. We have seen plenty of people. The perfect example is Mac Jones. Let's say if Mac Jones was a high school player um, now instead of back then when NAL was not allowed. Do you really think some booster is going to pay Mac Jones a million dollars coming to Alabama? Then either be happy that he sits three years behind Jalen Hurts and then two behind Tua Tungvaloa before starting in year four? Think he's going to be that patient to see his investment pay off? Think he's going to be happy with Mac Jones being third-string quarterback and then second-string quarterback for three years when you know you're paying this guy a ton of money to either sponsor your program or just flat-out come and play well at Alabama? No one has any patience right now in society. So that's not going to work out. I think it's going to course correct. I think it's a reason why we don't have to rush to change the rules right now. They're going to fix themselves. But the moral of the story here is that NIL is a great thing for college sports because it is bringing parity, especially to college football. And Nick Saban calling out Jimbo Fisher and Texas a is the perfect example of why it's working and why it's great for college sports. Nick Saban never calls out anyone. Nick Saban respects every single coach and every single opponent he has ever played and ever will play. This is out of nature. This is out of Nick Saban's norm to call out a name specifically and say they are cheating. They are breaking the rules. You know why Nick Saban is doing so? Because he sees what's happening. He knows NALs bring parity. Alabama will be fine. They are going to now start paying kids. They're going to start changing the way they recruit. Nick Saban is just like Coach K. He adjusts to the landscape of the sport. Coach K didn't want one and dones. He switched, won a national title. Nick Saban had to, you know, was running a, a, a run, run heavy and defense uh, oriented team. Guess what? He all of a sudden opens it up, became a spread offense, and won national titles. Nick Saban is no dummy. He adjusts to the landscape of the sport. He will adjust and he'll be fine. But he also knows. And going out of character the way he did last night, talking to, to boosters in Birmingham, he knows NIL is going to make it tougher and tougher and tougher to get all of these top-tier kids to Tuscaloosa the way Alabama has done so for years. And that is a great thing. A great thing for college football. Maybe not for Alabama. And they'll still be fine. But spreading out the talent is the best thing in college football. And we are seeing that happen. And we are seeing results Because we are seeing the frustration from Nick Saban already. NIL is great. And it's already working. And it's already proving that it is having an impact in a positive way in sports. When we return here, I want to discuss and go back to the NBA quickly. Jimmy Butler. Has he been the best best player this postseason? We will discuss when the Ryan Hickey Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. 
right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey back with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Back from vacation. Right here on this Thursday morning. I apologize for not being here either last Thursday or uh, this past Monday. I was on a little vacation to San Diego. If you have never been, could not recommend it anymore. If you have been, you know the beauty that lives out there where every day is sunny and 75. So much to do, so much beautiful greenery. Went to the San Diego Zoo for the first time. You hear tremendous reviews and raves about it. And man, it was so, so cool. Polar bears, the giraffes, they had a tremendous penguin exhibit. I, If you're ever thinking about it on the fence and always thought, hmm, maybe San Diego or looking for a place to go on vacation, could not recommend San Diego enough. Everything is so close, 15 minutes away from the city, from the zoo, from the beach. It's the best of both worlds. City life, if you like that, boom, it's right there. Beach life, if you like that, boom, it's right down the road as well. Everything could not be closer, and it is just tremendous. Had a blast. Great to be back with you guys, but could not recommend going out to the beautiful left coast in San Diego if you were interested. That's where I was this last week or last weekend. Causing miss Thursday and Monday show, but it's great to be back with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So I want to ask you this question. Who has been the best player this postseason? This postseason. For me, the answer is Jimmy Butler. Now, before we go any further, I want to say this. I'm not saying Jimmy Butler is a better player than Giannis. I'm not saying Jimmy Butler is a better scorer than Luka Doncic. But when you look at this postseason so far, when we talk about all-around player, able to do offense, defense, impact winning in many different ways, when you talk about that impact on your team and having it result in wins, I don't think there's been a better player than Buckets, Jimmy Buckets, this strictly postseason. Not career, not season. Just in this small sample size of postseason basketball. For me, Jimmy Butler has been the best player. And I thought game one on Tuesday night showed why he's been the best all-around player in this postseason. 41 points on a very efficient 12-19 of shooting. Grabbed 9 rebounds, had 5 assists, 4 steals, 3 blocks. He has impacted the game in literally every single facet. And his ability... To impact every part of the game is, for me, the reason why he has been better than Giannis overall in just this postseason. Why he's had a bigger and better impact than Luka in this postseason. Because Jimmy Butler has been able to answer the bell in many different areas and facets of the game. Look, when you need a score, when you need buckets, Jimmy Butler has been there to answer the call. Those 41 points he scored on Tuesday night. Third time this postseason, he's scored 40 or more points, most in the NBA. No player in the playoffs has had three 40-point games this postseason except Jimmy Buckets. But he's doing so at a very efficient clip. He's averaging 29.8 points per game, which is fourth in the NBA. Okay, fine. He's behind Nicole Jokic, Giannis, and Luka. But he's doing so and doing something that they haven't been doing, which is being efficient. He's 53.5% from the field. He is shooting over 50% this postseason. That's unheard of. Where offense gets harder, when defenses clamp down and play better defense, when the open shots become less and less, when tougher shots now um, 
are, for the most part, how you're going to score. Jim Butler has not only been scoring at a high level, again, three 40-point games, averaging just shy of 30 points per game. He's doing so in over 50% shooting. He is efficient and scoring. For me, that's why he, when it comes to all-around best player, is one of the examples of why he is, right now, better than Giannis and better than Luka just this postseason. He has been this cat. He has been the catalyst for this Miami offense throughout this entire postseason. He gets the Heat offense going. He's been by far the most consistent player on the offensive end of the floor for Miami. And for a team that is kind of hit or miss at times with Tally Hero getting hot and cold, and with Bam Adebayo sometimes, especially in round number two, getting shut down by uh, Embiid, the Heat have relied a lot on Jimmy Butler, and he has absolutely delivered. And one of the ways he impacts the game and one of the ways the Heat have been deadly this postseason is the third quarter. This Miami Heat team is the best third quarter team in the playoffs. As soon as they come out of halftime, they either take control of the game and run away with the lead, or if they're down at halftime, get the lead back and kind of re-control the game in the second half. Well, one of the reasons why the Heat are the best third quarter team is because Jimmy Butler has been the best third quarter player in the NBA. Again, the Heat go as Jimmy Butler goes whether it's on the offensive end or whether it's on the defensive end. But it's not exactly an accident or coincidence that the best third-quarter team is led by Jimmy Butler, whose best quarter this postseason has been the third quarter. When you look at his splits, right, first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, Jimmy Butler averages in the third quarter the most points per game, averages his highest field goal percentage, makes and takes the most foul shots, and has his best plus-minus. So he is being aggressive, He's scoring, and he's getting everything done on the offensive end. And it's no uh, coincidence that when he's playing his best, that's when the Heat are as well. They go as Jimmy Butler goes. So while, yes, Giannis averages more points per game than Jimmy Butler. Giannis is the top scorer in the NBA in terms of points per game average. While, yes, Luka Doncic is an all-around better scorer, without a doubt. It's not even a comparison. And when Nicole Jokic also averages more points per game than Jimmy Butler did, I don't think those three players respectively have the same impact as Jimmy Butler has so far in the Heat this postseason. He has been the heartbeat of this team. And so why, talent-wise, sure, he's not better than Luka and he's not better than Giannis. This postseason, though, he has been the best player in the NBA. And it's not just on the offensive end because, again, Right, especially in the playoffs, you need to play well on both sides of the court. If you can score, great. But if you can't stop anyone, you're not going far in the playoffs. If you're a defensive liability, you're going to be a more of a net negative to your team than a positive. And in Jimmy Butler's credit, for him, his success has not just been about scoring. He's averaging 29.8 points per game on over 50% shooting. And sirens here left and right. Still trying to get used to the New York City studios back again after having that serene San Diego life. I will say one quick thing, very quick about San Diego. No one honks. No one honks at all. Everyone is very nice, very calm. And you come back here and there you go, honking the horn again anytime someone stops at a red light for a half second. Anyway, defense is equally as important in the playoffs as offense. And Jimmy Butler has been just as good on the defensive end of the floor, just as impactful on the defensive end of the floor, as he's been on the offensive side. He's a guy who's led the league so far this postseason in steals. Steals per game. 
just over two. And even we saw in game number one, because I thought game number one was a perfect example of his impact uh, overall in the game and how he's able to just take over a game in a way I don't think any other player has so far this postseason. The Heat, down by eight, came out of halftime and went on a 22-2 run uh, to start the third quarter. Even though, you know, you look at, oh, wow, offense 22-2, they're shooting the lights out. That 22-2 run started on the defensive end of the floor. Jimmy Butler ignited the team at back-to-back steals. Both converted to points. He got the team going. He got the crowd going. He himself had three steals alone in the third quarter. This Heat team is built on defense. And that's where a lot of their success starts from. And it starts and is led by Jimmy Butler, who does everything on the defensive end. He gets a lot of steals. He blocks shots. He grabs rebounds. He can guard almost anyone on the court. He's not a liability. No one is looking to single out Jimmy Butler. No disrespect to Luka Doncic. But we saw the Suns, and when the Suns had the most success in that second round series against the Mavericks, it was when they were hunting Luka. Where they're finding him and saying, how are we going to get one-on-one? How is Chris Paul going to get him one-on-one? How is Devin Booker going to get him one-on-one? It worked out more times than not for the Suns when they found Luka on the defensive end of the floor. Luka could score with anyone. Now, to his credit, he improved his defensive effort, if you will, a little bit more as the series went on. But Jimmy Butler is not someone that teams are hunting. Luka Doncic going up the floor on the offensive end is not trying to find Jimmy Butler single out because he knows that's the easiest matchup. It's the other way around. Jimmy Butler is a guy who can do it all on the defensive end of the floor. He has been insanely efficient and also scoring at a high clip as well this postseason. For me, when you add it all together, his offensive scoring prowess, his efficiency, his impact on the defensive end of the floor, for me, Jimmy Butler has been the best all-around player this postseason. Just this postseason. I think he deserves a recognition for it. And I think game one of the Easter Conference Finals the other night showed you the reason why he is the best all-around player in this playoffs. He's not a better scorer than Luka. He's not a better player than Giannis. Giannis is the best player in the NBA. There's no doubt about that right now. And he played tremendous in this postseason, especially in round number two against the Celtics without Chris Middleton. I think when we talk, when we talk about this series, when we talk about this playoffs, impact on winning, doing so in all different facets of the game, no one has had a bigger impact, for me, than Jimmy Butler. He's the best all-around player, and he deserves his recognition. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network. You can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show, or on YouTube, uh, Worldwide Sports Red Network. Is Jimmy Butler the best player this postseason? Or is there a player, whether it's Luka or whether it's Giannis, that you think has been better than Butler so far in this playoffs? Again, love to hear your thoughts on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Ray Eric. You can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show or write on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, I'm going to go back to the college uh, football game. CBS Sports yesterday uh, put out their rankings and ranked every single Power 5 coach in college football heading into 2022. I want to read you their top five coaches heading into this season. Because for me, there is one coach... That is massively, massively overrated. We'll tell you who that coach is when we return. You'll send to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. 
And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show, where else but the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. As always, the 10 o'clock Eastern hours brought to you by LC Designs. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions, especially now, springtime starting to get into summer. No better way to kind of be outside and enjoy the beautiful weather than with a picnic. And no better way to enjoy a picnic than with some beautiful and aesthetically pleasing plus delicious charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark herself. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com. lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. CBS Sports put out a very interesting head coach rankings heading into the 2022 season. And it, for me, confirmed one thing. Jimbo Fisher is the most overrated coach in college football. It, to me, is without question. Plenty of coaches that get their due. Plenty of coaches that, you know, say underachieve and maybe get more praise than they should. None get more praise for lesser results than Jimbo Fisher uh, of Texas A&M, especially in recent history. So CBS Sports, where they, they had all their college football reporters, writers, analysts rank every single Power 5 head coach. They put Jimbo Fisher at number five. They said Jimbo Fisher is a top five head coach heading into 2022. There's no way in hell. I'm sorry. There's no way you can convince me. Jimbo Fisher is a top five head coach. Their rankings of the top five at least were Nick Saban, number one. Absolutely no argument. Curry Smart, number two. Just won a national title. Every single year, Georgia recruits their ass off. Fine. Dabo, number three. What he has built at Clemson, no one down year should take him out of the top five. Absolutely. Lincoln Riley, number four, going to USC. I agree. Number five, Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M, to me, makes no sense. Like, when you are compiling this list of the top coaches heading to 2022 in college football, I think you have to consider two criteria. On-field results and recruiting slash development of your players. Now, credit to Jimbo Fisher before going any further. He has nailed the second part. Recruiting, well, at least recruiting. We'll see about development. He has landed the number one recruiting class for 2022. We just talked about it before. Nick Saban calling out Texas A&M for buying all the players. Were they bought them or not? To me, it doesn't matter. You got the number one recruiting class this year. How you do it, to me, is irrelevant. Every single player in college sports recently has gotten paid, whether it's legally or illegally. So I'm not going to just, all you know, penalize Jimbo Fisher uh, for how he got his recruiting class. It's the highest recruiting class in recruiting history. So credit Jimbo Fisher for getting a lot of players and a lot of talented players at A&M. But where he severely falls short, where for me takes him out of the running for being a top five coach, is the consistent elite on the field results that you need to be considered one of the best coaches in college football. And that is what is that's what's missing from Jimbo's resume. You can't call him a top five coach. We hasn't had the success on the field in recent years. Now, yes, before we go any further, I know he's won a national title at Florida State. But winning a title, now going back almost a decade, is still not enough to keep in the top five. Like, you can't live on one national title and have basically you be cemented as a top five coach in college football um, uh, for forever. You need recent results. You need sustained success, and that is where Jimbo's fallen short. Let me ask you this. If you're a doubter, if you think I'm being crazy about Jimbo Fisher and you disagree, what is one word for you to describe Jimbo Fisher's Texas A&M tenure? He's been in college station for four years. 
The one word I would I would choose to describe his tenure so far, underachieving. He has underachieved so far. Text in him. Tell me I'm wrong. Tweet me. Ryan Hickey Show right now and tell me why I'm wrong. Right on Facebook. Worldwide Sports Ryan Eric. Tell me why Jimbo Fisher hasn't underachieved so far at Texas A&M. Like, how can you how can you call it a success? This is a program, mind you, when they signed Jimbo in his introductory press conference. Do you remember what they presented to Jimbo Fisher? They bought and created a national title trophy that says, "Congratulations, Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M." Blank national champions. The only thing was missing was the year. Whether it's 2022, 2023, 2024. They bought a national championship trophy and presented it to Jimbo Fisher the first day he was hired on the job with the only thing missing was the date. Saying, we know you're going to win a title. The only thing we don't know is when. So far through four years at Texas A&M, can we really sit here and say AM is a title contender? Have they even gotten close? They have not. When you have set your eyes on a title, when you bring Jimbo Fisher to College Station with one goal and one goal only to win a national title, so far looking back on the four years he's been there, they've come nowhere close. Look at the four years he's he's been there. Nine and four, eight and five, nine and one, eight and four. If you are going to compete for a national title, if you are going to, in the SEC, be a real contender, you are going to beat some big-time programs. In the four years Jimbo Fisher has been in A&M, they have four wins over ranked opponents. That's it. Not four wins over top 10 opponents. Not four wins over top five opponents. Four wins over ranked opponents in general. That to me is not enough. That is nowhere near the amount of wins you need to be a title contender. You need four wins in one season against ranked opponents to be a legitimate title contender. Not four ranked wins in four years in the regular season. Also, if you were a true title contender, if Jimbo Fisher really has taken this program to the point where they are in the national title hunt every single year, well, one of the teams you are going to go toe-to-toe against consistently push around is Alabama. Alabama is a standard in the SEC. If you are going to win a title, hell, if you're going to compete for a title, you got to go toe-to-toe with Nick Saban and take him down. And guess what? So far in the four years of Jimbo Fisher's tenure in college season, one and three. I get, yes, they just beat uh, Alabama this past year with Zach Calzada and that whole upset. Guess what? They finished eight and four. They weren't able to capitalize on that. And also, the three losses, if we look at that A&M has suffered Alabama, not even close. JV versus varsity. The average point differential in Alabama beating A&M the three times that they have beat them under when Jimbo Fisher's been there is by an average of 22 points. 22 points is the average margin of victory for Alabama over Texas A&M in the three years that they have beaten them since Jimbo Fisher's gotten there. So you are trying to tell me that Jimbo Fisher's a top five coach in college football when in Texas A&M, he has gone 9-4, 8-5, 9-1, 8-4. 
He is just four total uh, wins over ranked opponents in four years. He has gone one and three against Alabama, the, the true team you have to uh, beat if you want to actually be a title contender. With those three losses coming by three touchdowns on average. This is also a guy who hasn't been to a conference championship game. Forget on winning the conference. He hasn't just been to a conference championship game since 2014. How is he a top five coach in college football? Someone explain it to me. Someone right now, please explain how Jimbo Fisher is a top five coach in college football. He is not. He is absolutely not. He's had a lot of success at, at Florida State. He built a, a, a really good program there. He's won a national title. But in order for you to still be considered a top five coach in college football, you need to have recent results as well. We cannot be living in the past. We all can't be Yankee fans bragging about 27 rings and talking about the 1922 World Series that no one on this earth remembers. It's time to talk about what have you done lately. And right now, Jimbo Fisher has not done anything on the field lately to justify him being a top five coach in college football. Like, tell someone explain to me. How can a guy who hasn't been to a conference championship game, forget about winning, he's just been in the game since 2014, who has four ranked wins or, or four wins over ranked opponents in four years, most wins he's had in a season is nine, getting blown out by, you know, the biggest competitor to him every single year in terms of winning a national title, how can we sit here and tell me that Jimbo Fisher is a better head coach than Ryan Day, who is currently sixth on this list? I think there's no shot in hell that Jimbo Fisher is a better coach than Ryan Day. How can you sit here and tell me even Brian Kelly is a better coach than Jimbo Fisher? Brian Kelly, by the way, let's just forget the entire Notre Dame exit and forget the brutal, cringeworthy accent or recruiting videos that have surfaced since he has gone to Baton Rouge. Brian Kelly is a really, really damn good coach and one of the most underrated coaches in college football. What he has been able to achieve, sustained success at Notre Dame, where the academic standards are very hard, where geography-wise there's not a lot of talent in the state of Indiana. A lot of kids now are, you know, you got to... A lot of kids are coming from Southern California and in the South, and he's able to get them to come to South Bend, Indiana at a very challenging, very religious school. He has gotten them to the college football playoff, what, three times? He has had this program always competing now for national titles the last, let's say, three, four years. Like, they have been one of the most consistent winners in the last five, six years. Like, I know everyone wants to clown them and say, oh, once they get on the national stage, they, they get blown out. Well, guess what? Yes, they got blown out by Clemson and Trevor Lawrence. Yes, they got blown out by Alabama as well. But let me ask you this question. Who is beating these programs? Everyone is getting blown out by Alabama. Everyone is getting blown out by Clemson recently. Notre Dame's no different. People just love beating, uh, beating down Notre Dame. So what Brian Kelly's been able to do in recruiting at an extremely high level at Notre Dame has been very impressive, and he has accomplished more and had more sustained success than Jimbo Fisher has with better resources, less academic standards, and geography-wise being either in Tallahassee or now in College Station. He's had the advantage recruiting-wise at those school, uh, two schools, and still Brian Kelly's had more, uh, more success. Hell, even Kyle Whittingham at Utah, who's number eight on this list, 
has built Utah and has gotten Utah closer to a national title and making the college football playoff than Jimbo Fisher has the last five years. Tell me again, Utah, with their limited resources, has been closer to a national title and closer to a college football playoff than Jimbo Fisher. How is that possible? How is Jimbo Fisher still a top five coach in college football? It makes no sense. This list to me shows Jimbo Fisher by far is the most overrated coach in college football and it's not even close. Having him top five is a frankly a disgrace. I'm sorry. It's a disgrace. Recruiting-wise, yes, he has the best recruiting class coming to Texas A&M. What is he going to do with it? He had great recruits at Florida State. I mean, Texas A&M, we're going to pretend that he didn't have great recruiting classes before this? He has been a guy that has underachieved so far at A&M, and I don't see how you can reward that by saying he's a top five coach in college football. I take Ryan Day over him. I take Brian Kelly over him. I take Kyle Whittingham over him. I know Luke Fickle's exempt from this list because he's not a power five coach. And maybe if every single college football coach was included in this list, maybe Luke Fickle's ranked higher. We don't know. But I tell you this right now, Luke Fickle's a better head coach than Jimbo Fisher. There's a lot of coaches you can call overrated. By far, Jimbo Fisher takes the cake. He's the most overrated coach in college football. So I'm curious your thoughts here. We love talking college football here on the show. College football is a very hotly debated, hotly contested uh, sport. In your mind, who's the most overrated coach in college football right now? For me, the answer is Jim Official. What's yours? Love to hear your thoughts here on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, Twitter, and to me at Ryan Hickey Show, or on YouTube. Be right on our YouTube channel, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. That's where you can find the live stream of the show right now on the tube when we return here on the Ryan Hickey show game number two Celtics heat is later on tonight can the Celtics bounce back to get a, a victory I'm feeling pretty good I'll explain why that is next when we return this is to the Ryan Hickey show on the worldwide sports radio network it is the worldwide sports radio network, radio network. welcome back to the Ryan Hickey show right here on the worldwide sports radio network Ryan Hickey, back with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We'll get to Game 2, the Eastern Conference Finals here in a second. But also, it's a, I love these weekends where it is jam-packed. We have, obviously, the NBA playoffs, the hockey playoffs, which you talk about just a soul, soul crusher. Yesterday, I'll be honest, yesterday was one of those days for me, Wednesday night, where I really did kind of wonder why I get so into sports as I am. Yesterday was just crushing. Being here in New York, big time Ranger fan. They dominate. Well, not done. They played well for almost a full three periods against the Hurricanes. Period three got a little iffy. Late in, uh, allowing a late uh, goal to the Hurricanes. Sent it to overtime. Lose early in overtime after a deflection off uh, Ryan Lindgren. So almost like an own goal, if you will. Lose game one. Heartbreaker. Absolute heartbreaker to uh, lose in overtime in a game in which the Rangers played really well in. But not just that. Baseball-wise, as literally within five minutes of the Rangers giving up the lead late in the third period, you had Mets pitcher Max Scherzer leave the game with left-side tightness. Never a great sign for a competitor like Max Scherzer to take himself out. We're waiting for an update this morning. But between the Rangers' late goal that led to a loss, between Max Scherzer getting hurt, I'll be honest, yesterday was a really rough day for your boy and really questioned why I have my life way too involved in sports because my mood plummeted immediately but 
like any tough person, we're back on the horse this morning. Back into sports because we got NBA playoffs, hockey playoffs, baseball in full swing, and we also got the PGA Championship. I love the majors. I'll be honest. I'm a golf... um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here. Casual golf fan? I love I watch every major. I love it. That can't get enough. But PJ Championship is this week. Southern Hills. So far, your leader, Max Homa. Four players tied at two under. Max Homa wills out tours. So far, two of those players tied at two under. Obviously, the big name everyone wants to know, Tiger Woods. Through three holes, Tiger is minus one. Now, I'll be honest. I'm not expecting much from Tiger Woods. I don't think he'll ever win a major again, especially not this year, coming off of the insane injuries uh, that he suffered in that car crash about... 16 months ago, 15 months ago. But so far, again, off to a hot start like he was at the Masters. Minus one through three holes for Tiger Woods. We'll keep you updated at least until the show ends at 11 a.m. Eastern. But Tiger, another guy everyone wants to know, minus one along with Jordan Spieth in that same group. He is also a minus one Jordan Spieth going for the career Grand Slam. He has a Masters. He has the Open. He has a U.S. Open Championship. The only thing missing from that resume, PGA Championship. Minus one for Jordan Spieth through three holes. So tonight, game two of the Eastern Conference Finals is set to commence. I think the Celtics are winning tonight for two reasons. Number one, this team in game one was not that far away. Like, I know they got blown out uh, in the third quarter, and they eventually lost by 11 points. But despite the fact they lost by double digits, they played really well and outplayed the Heat for three out of the four quarters. Like, I get you can't play this game because, you know, if it's and butts were candy and nuts, like, I get the game, right? But you look at between the first quarter, the second quarter, the fourth quarter, the Celtics outscore the Heat by a total of 14 points in those three quarters. Now, again, the third quarter, we're not going to hide the story here. That's the reason why they lost. You can't get outscored by 25 points in any quarter and expect to win. But 39-14 was the scoring margin for the Heat over the Celtics in that third quarter, that end of the game. So I'm not trying to sit here and tell you basically the, Heat, uh, the Celtics should have won. They had no business winning the game when you play that poorly in one court alone. But encouraging perspective hanging in game number two is for three to the four quarters, the Celtics outplay the Heat. And the other good news, if you're a Boston fan or a Boston better, is that a lot of those third quarter struggles, I thought for the Celtics, and what led to that 22-2 run right out of the gate for Miami to really kind of take control of the game, I thought a lot of those struggles were self-inflicted. Celtics had eight turnovers in that quarter alone. Jason Tatum by himself at six. Jason Tatum played really poorly after a great first half in which he had 21 points, was very efficient from the floor. He had an awful third quarter. Again, turned the ball over six times. Jim Butler got two of those steals early on that kind of fed into the crowd and really kind of changed uh, the momentum um, going Miami's way. But when you have eight turnovers as a team in the third quarter alone, when you shoot just two of 15 from the floor in the third quarter, and you allow four offensive rebounds and give, Miami, and give Miami second and third opportunities, you're not going to win games. Even in just one quarter, when you play as poorly as you did, where you turn the ball over, you get Miami second, third opportunities, and you go just two of 15 from the field, you are not winning that game. But the good news is, is that even though Jimmy Butler is playing great, and we just talked about it before, I think to me he's, the, been, he's been the best player this postseason. But even with Jimmy Butler playing the way he is, even with him being the best player in this postseason, even with the Heat being the best third-quarter team in the playoffs, these mistakes, to me, are fixable. That's why I think Boston's going to bounce back here in game number two and win. I'm still picking the Celtics to win this series in six. And one of the reasons to hang your hat on if you're a Celtics backer 
is that they really played well for three out of the four quarters uh, in game number one. And not to mention, the other thing that I think you can hold your hat on here and feel good about it if you're uh, a Celtics, I don't want to say fan, but if you're rooting for the Celtics to win, is that this has been a very resilient bunch of season. To the Celtics' credit, every single time their back has been up against the wall this postseason, they have responded. They have swung, and they have they have delivered a counterpunch right now to whether it's the Bucs, and I think they'll deliver one to the Heat. If you look at this just this past series against the Bucs, I thought for me what was going to be the Eastern Conference Finals between the Bucs and the Celtics. Uh, I think the winner is going to go to the Finals. I still think that. But you look at game number one against Celtics. They lose at home on your home floor in a tough game. What do they do? Bounce back in game number two to dominate that game. When you then go to game number three and the series switches to Milwaukee, they lost game three on what was a heartbreaker where it was back and forth. They had a big fourth quarter comeback and their game tying bucket was three tenths of a second, maybe not even, too late, where the tipping just came at the buzzer. That's a heartbreaking, that's a gut-wrenching way to lose that game. What did they do in game four? Bounce back and win. Game five, we're talking about game uh, game three being a heartbreaker where you lose by literally tenths of a second. Game five, you're up 14 points at home, a chance with the defending champs on the ropes to take a commanding three games to two series lead. You blow a 14-point fourth quarter lead. Then have Drew Holiday on back-to-back possessions. Block Marcus Smart as he goes up for the game-time play and then pickpocket him as he's driving down the court to try to take a uh, game-tying three. You have Drew Holiday steal Marcus Smart's soul on back-to-back defensive plays and the team blows a 14-point fourth quarter lead. What do they do in game six? Jason Tatum explodes a big win on the road against the defending champs in Milwaukee, then dominate game seven to move on and win that series. This team has responded to adversity really well, and I think they'll do so again here in game two. Jason Tatum has been a guy this postseason that has been, excuse me, able to bounce back from poor games. Now, look, he scored 29 points in game number one, but really it's tell two halves. First half, he was unstoppable. Very efficient, 21 points on the field, or 21 Sorry, points in the half. And was a catalyst as the Celtics took an eight-point halftime lead. Second half, things changed. We mentioned six turnovers in the third quarter alone. He scored just eight points and really struggled to find a shot. He has been a guy that has struggled at times in this postseason. But he's also been a guy that has bounced back and played really well. I think he'll follow up what was a bad second half with a really good game number two. I'm going to assume... Marcus Smart, and I know the injury uh, report listed has him listed as probable after missing game number one with a foot sprain. I'm going to believe Marcus Smart is going to return for game number two. How close to 100% he's going to be? Nowhere close. But I think his presence alone is going to provide a spark, going to provide a boost for this team. And not to make excuses here. I'm not saying this is the reason why they lost the game because I still think probably the way they Celtics played in that third quarter, they're going to lose anyway. But... They were not ready for the loss of Al Horford. Al Horford being out and having COVID or being placed in the safety protocols, we should say health and safety protocols is the official determination, um, basically like an hour or so before tip-off, was very surprising. And even the Celtics admitted at postgame, they weren't ready for him to be out. So now at least you have 48 hours to game plan how they're going to play, how they're going to rotate, how they're going to defend and score when Al Horford is not on the floor for them. So you're a little bit better prepared going to game number two. You get at least one reinforcer back with Marcus Smart should be returning uh, to the floor. And I trust Jason Tatum after a poor second half is going to bounce back here on game number two and play really well. So I do think here, this Celtics team is going to bounce back, 
win game number two in Miami and get this series all even up back to Boston going to game number three. I think the Celtics are going to win in six. I think they're going to finals. They are my pick to win the finals. I'm not panicking after really what was one bad quarter against the Heat. Credit to the Heat. They played really well. And again, when you outscore a team by 25 points, like they did in that third quarter, you're going to win most games if you're Miami. I don't think we're going to have as big of a third quarter tonight. I think the Celtics will be ready for that third quarter storm. And they will get a much-needed victory here in game number two. So I'm going with the Celtics to win this series and win game number two. How about yourself? Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter uh, as well. And also YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, I want to discuss one other thing when it comes to Nick Saban's comments about Texas A&M. I think NAL has gotten to him, and I think he is frustrated because he knows parity is coming to college football, and it makes building and maintaining the dynasty that Nick Saban's been, you know, had in Tuscaloosa since 2009. Uh, NAL makes it more difficult to sustain that. With that said, though, the one thing no one is talking about is the main message for why Nick Saban called out a and I'll explain why that is when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio. So Nick Saban has been the big topic of conversation so far uh, this morning after his comments, in which he publicly called out Jimbo Fisher and Texas A&M for buying their latest recruiting class, A&M, in case you didn't realize or forgot, A&M has the number one ranked recruiting class in college football in 2022, the highest since like the star rating came out, right? Five star, four star. Since that star rating was first created, the recruiting class uh, Jimbo Fisher has compiled at Texas A&M this past year is the highest ranked recruiting class in the history of the star system. So it's been a, it's been a big deal, and credit to Jimbo Fisher. However you get him, however you get him for getting those players there and. Um, in College Station, in order to to build that recruiting class. But here's the thing. Nick Saban calling out for the first time publicly. Let's not, let's not forget. Nick Saban is someone who respects every single opponent Alabama plays. He is someone, right, that wants to make you believe, the, uh, you know, us the fans, the media, and the players, that Georgia Southern, the Little Sisters of the Poor, D3 Salina High School in Texas could beat Alabama. He has been someone that takes no program lightly, only offers praise and respect for every single coach and every single program he faces. He has never want to call anyone out for anything negative. Him calling out Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher is not an accident. And he's not doing so to get them in trouble with college uh, with the NCAA. Nick Saban is calling out Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher to make Alabama better. And it's going to work. Let's, you you got to realize where he was. Uh, Nick Saban was doing this speech yesterday, not in front of his team, not at a press conference. 
He was speaking in front of a hundred local business owners in Birmingham, Alabama. He was basically at a fundraising event. He was there to drum up money to get local businesses to pour more money into the Alabama football program than they already have. And him specifically calling out Tex A&M and Jimbo Fisher puts a target, basically kind of lights a fire under everyone there to say, hey, look, A&M's getting all this money. Look at their boosters and look at all the money they're pouring into this collective in order for recruits to go to, to Tex A&M. Well, look, we haven't played it. Uh, we haven't paid anyone, but guess what? I guess we're going to have to now because times are changing. Nick Saban, to his credit, is a lot like uh, Mike Krzyzewski at Duke. Not a big Coach K fan personally, but the one thing I will always respect about Coach K is that for all the success he has had throughout his historic career and one of the best college basketball coaches, if not the best college basketball coach in, in history, one of the reasons why he's been so successful is that he's never been afraid to adjust. Even though he could say, hey, look, this, is, this system or this philosophy is what, what has gotten me so far and has won me rings in the past. He is not afraid to see either the future or the landscape of college basketball changing. He's never been afraid to adjust. We know Duke was one of the last programs to really embrace the one-and-done philosophy that has really taken over college basketball. Right? Coach K only recruits certain guys. I only want you know Duke guys that are going to be here three, four years and be bought into the program. Well, Coach K realized, hmm, Coach Cal at Kentucky is having a lot of success. North Carolina is having a lot of success with these one-and-done players. Maybe we should adjust our philosophy and start bringing in one-and-dones. He did that, won a national title, another Final Four appearance. Coach K, despite all the success in the past, deviated from that path and changed to the landscape that made his team successful in that moment. Nick Saban's done that as well. Let's not forget, Alabama for the longest time under Nick Saban, for most of the, the championships they have won, or really half of it, We'll say was built on what defense and running the ball. They had excellent, excellent defenses, and they had insanely good running backs and offensive lines. They would win games ugly, right? They, it would not be pretty, especially early on in Nick Saban's tenure. But they won, and guess what? Nick Saban saw college football changing, saw the way Ole Miss was able to beat him, and you said, you know what? I'm adjusting. If spread offenses, if going five wide and having a dynamic quarterback that you can't, you know, chase down because it's too fast and his arm is too strong, if that's the way they're going to do it, then I'm changing my philosophy. And guess what? Nick Saban in Alabama all of a sudden started recruiting more quarterbacks, more receivers, and guess what? They continue to win. He has adjusted. He has changed. Nick Saban is not complaining about NIL. Let's get that full right now on the table. He is not bitching that NIL is bad. He is not complaining that Texas A&M bought their recruiting class. He is lighting a fire under all the boosters around the Alabama program to motivate them to spend more money than they already have uh, in the program in order to buy more recruits, if you want to just frankly call it that, going forward. He is doing what a great coach does, and he is doing, as a motivator, what has made him consistently successful at Alabama. He has always gotten his players to play hard. He has gotten insanely talented players to sit for three years on the bench, not sulk, not complain, not want to transfer, and then when it's their time to shine for a year, play well and go in the first round of the draft. There's a reason for that. He is a great motivator and he is doing so right again. He is motivating the people in the room to pour more money into the program. That's what this is all about.
Here's why. I want to read you one quote from Nick Saban. There's a lot of quotes going around here, but this to me is a dead giveaway of what Nick Saban's trying to do. He's not trying to call out Texas A&M. He's not trying to get them in trouble with the NCAA. He's not even saying what Jimbo Fisher did is wrong. He's calling out a fact, which is true. A&M paid their recruits. But you know what Nick Saban is realizing? He has to do that as well. And I want to read you this quote because this is a dead giveaway of what Nick Saban is actually trying to do. He's talking to, again, a room of 100 local businesses in Birmingham, Alabama. He said, quote, to them yesterday, quote, I know that we're going to lose recruits because somebody else is going to be willing to pay them more. But name, image, and likeness is something that's here. I think the more supporters we have for the University of Alabama in all sports that are willing to sponsor players, whatever you want to call it, use them in their business to help you do business, that's going to help our program. Nick Saban just told you right then and there the reason why he, he, he mentioned Texas A&M by name. No one else did it. Every single college football coach is thinking the same thing. A&M bought their recruiting class. No one ever wanted to, to single them out. No one ever said Jimbo Fisher or Texas A&M's name specifically. They danced around it and dropped hints. There's a reason why Nick Saban went all in and said, A&M bought their recruiting class. We finished second. They finished first for one reason. They bought them. He's not complaining. He's not trying to get uh, Texas A&M in trouble with the NCAA. He realizes the landscape of college football is changing. And by basically talking to 100 business owners in Alabama, saying, hey, look, the reason why we lost out on a few recruits is because other schools paid them more. We, if you are able to give us more than you already give, we are then going to be able to pay those kids to stay here at Alabama and not leave and make our program better. He is doing what a master motivator does. He is doing what has made him the most successful college football coach ever. Motivating people to buy in even more than they already have. This is strictly a fundraising ploy. That is it. Nothing more. He's not calling out A&M to get them in trouble. He's not trying to start a feud with Jimbo Fisher and say, hey, you can't recruit. All you can do is buy him. He realizes that's the game. That is the way the game is going. So instead of complaining about it, he's adjusting. And he is talking, even though the headline is A&M gets called out by Nick Saban, the real motivation for him doing it is to get even more boosters, more local businesses to shell out even more cash than they already have in order for Alabama to pay as many of the top prospects as possible and to match whatever A&M is giving these recruits or other schools are giving these recruits. He's a master motivator, and we are seeing it yet again on tap right here. So that'll do it for the Ryan Hickey Show on this uh, Thursday morning. Great to be back with you here after a few days off. We will be back on Monday after a very busy, very busy weekend of hockey, basketball playoffs, PJ Championship underway, Tiger Woods one under through three, and obviously baseball as well. So hey, have a great weekend. As always, stay safe. Stay sane. Enjoy the Preakness as well. I can't forget that for your horse racing fans out there. And we'll talk to you Monday. Still got the vacation brain on you. Monday morning right here. Where else? The Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.